Last week, we talked about the flight of Boxcar, the B-29 which carried the Fat Man atomic bomb. Hiroshima had been attacked a few days before, and now it was the turn of Kokura. But the city was saved by sheer good luck. Having been ordered to identify the target visually, the crew found Kokura was totally obscured by cloud and haze. They made three bombing runs over the city, three attempts to nuke Kokura, but they couldn't see a damn thing. And so Boxcar, getting low on fuel, was forced to give up and head to the secondary target, Nagasaki. Kokura had escaped, but their luck meant Nagasaki's destruction. Boxcar turned southwest and headed for Nagasaki, its secondary target. Google Maps tells me it would take 26 hours to walk from Kakura to Nagasaki, but Boxcar made it in under half an hour. The writer Susan Southart, in her book Nagasaki Life After Nuclear War, tells us there were nine Nagasaki residents who had survived Hiroshima and who had now returned home to Nagasaki. From her book, a quote, One man who had dug into the ruins of his Hiroshima home to find the bones of his wife now walked through the streets of Nagasaki carrying a wash basin filled with her ashes to give to her parents. Meanwhile, in the huge Urakami Cathedral, 24 parishioners had gathered to make their confessions. This massive church would, in a few minutes, find itself ruined, just a few metres from ground zero. The actual target for Boxcar was the Mitsubishi Steel and Armament Works down by Nagasaki Harbour. But Nagasaki was an exceptionally difficult city in which to find a target, as it was so hilly. On a map, sure, the city is flat and you can stick a pin wherever you please, but in reality, the city was mountainous and bumpy and awkward, full of nooks and crannies and twists and folds and creases. And flying over this tricky terrain, the boxcar crew were ordered to only drop the bomb upon a visual ID of the target. But as with Kakura, 
When they arrived overhead, the city was covered in cloud. If they were to have any hope of finding a gap in the cloud, which would let them see the target, the armament works, they would probably have to fly over the city twice, three times, four times, again and again, hoping for a chance, hoping for a lucky gap in the clouds. That's what they'd done with Kakura, after all. Flown overhead three times, looking for the target. But they no longer had enough fuel for that. They only had enough for one pass over the city, one attempt to get it right. If they couldn't see it, if they couldn't manage to drop Fat Man, Boxcar would have to head back, back to base, carrying an armed atomic bomb. And they couldn't dare risk landing with that thing on board. So, if they couldn't drop it on Nagasaki and couldn't land back home with the thing, they would have to ditch it. They would have to drop it into the sea. They would have to throw away an atomic bomb at this point when they were so rare and so precious and, so some would argue, so vital to ending the war. No, there was no way they were ditching that thing. So the crew made the decision to find the target by radar if necessary. It was against their orders, but this thing had to be dropped. Fat Man had to go. Inside the bomb bay where Fat Man crouched, waiting to fall, the crew had scrawled various messages on it, as they had with the little boy for Hiroshima. The historian Alex Wellerstein tells us in an article in The New Yorker that messages included, Here's to you! and a second kiss for Hirohito. On its nose, the bomb had a stenciled acronym, J-A-N-C-F-U, which stood for Joint Army-Navy Civilian Fuck-Up. So here comes Boxcar on her first and her only flight over Nagasaki. Only enough fuel for one pass, one attempt, but a tiny opening in the clouds allowed the bombardier, Kermit Behan, to see the city and make the drop, albeit missing the target of the armament works. Ground Zero was actually three quarters of a mile off target, although who's going to argue it was still close enough to destroy the Mitsubishi armaments. So the bomb was released and it started plunging down towards Nagasaki. It took 47 seconds to fall. Immediately after releasing it, Boxcar went into a sharp 155 degree turn and began to dive. This was a manoeuvre that the crews had practised again and again and again. After dropping it, you've got 47 seconds to execute this manoeuvre and get out of there. The sharp turn gets you out of the way of the shockwave, and diving to a lower altitude means you can pick up speed and get out of there faster. Nonetheless, the plane, boxcar and the great artiste, which was flying behind it with its measuring responsibilities, both felt the shudder of the shockwave. 
In The Great Artiste, the New York Times journalist who we quoted last week was watching the whole thing. He remembers hearing the shout, There she goes! And looking ahead to Boxcar, he saw a black object go tumbling out of the plane and go falling down towards the city. He, along with everyone else in the two planes, was at this point wearing dark welder's glasses to shield their eyes from the nuclear flash. Even so, they all remember that a brilliant light flooded the planes. As it died away, they removed their glasses and our journalist looked down and he saw a pillar of purple fire, 10,000 feet high, shooting skyward with enormous speed. He said that he watched it, quote, shoot upward like a meteor coming from the earth instead of from outer space. It was a living thing, a new species of being, born right before our incredulous eyes. What was this mysterious purple light that he saw? The witnesses to various nuclear explosions and tests over the years have often described the fireball as containing roiling surges of strange colours and prominent amongst them is purple. I'll read you some descriptions from the huge mammoth book The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes, a classic of course. And here are some eyewitness accounts of Trinity. Trinity, of course, being the very first nuclear test, the very first nuclear explosion. And so there was this sense of this ominous cloud hanging over us. It was so brilliant purple, with all the radioactive glowing. And it just seemed to hang there forever. Of course it didn't, it must have been just a very short time until it went up. It was very terrifying. And the thunder from the blast, it bounced on the rocks and then it went. I don't know where else it bounced, but it never seemed to stop. Not like an ordinary echo with thunder, it just kept echoing back and forth in that jornada del muerto. It was a very scary time when it went off. Another remembers a most remarkable effect made its appearance. The whole surface of the ball was covered with a purple luminescence, like that produced by the electrical excitation of the air and caused undoubtedly by the radioactivity of the material in the ball. But as well as that prominent alien purple, other colours were present in the fireball. Here's another quote. We were lying there, very tense, in the early dawn, and there were just a few streaks of gold in the east. You could see your neighbour very dimly. Those ten seconds were the longest ten seconds that I ever experienced. Suddenly, there was an enormous flash of light, the brightest light I have ever seen, or that I think anyone has ever seen. It blasted, it pounced, it bored its way right through you. It was a vision which was seen with more than the eye. It was seen to last forever. You would wish it would stop. Altogether, it lasted about two seconds. Finally, it was over, diminishing, and we looked towards the place where the bomb had been. 
there was an enormous ball of fire which grew and grew and it rolled as it grew. It went up into the air in yellow flashes and into scarlet and green. It looked menacing. It seemed to come toward one. A new thing had just been born, a new control, a new understanding of man, which man had acquired over nature. So then that purple colour people seem to notice. Here's an explanation, again, from Alex Wellerstein in The New Yorker. It is that blistering radiation released in a reaction that takes about a millionth of a second to complete that makes the light so unearthly, that gives it the strength to burn through photographic paper and wound human eyes. The heat is such that the air around it becomes luminous and incandescent and then opaque. For a moment, the brightness hides itself. And uh, Professor Shizuma pointed out the possibility that some metals, such as steel and uranium, may have reacted with the heat and radiation to emit green or pink light, while gamma rays contacting the air could have produced the purple light. And a quote from the professor, When the heat dissipates and the reaction of metal and air has ended, the cloud turns white. But before that, that cooling, we get the horrible churning rainbow of all those crazy colours. Now beneath that flare of purple fire and beneath the fat, foamy, billowing white mushroom cloud which arose 40,000 people had died on the ground or maybe more. Turning again to Alex Wellerstein on his blog Nuclear Secrecy, which I recommend he says that we cannot know the actual number who died The generally accepted low estimate is 40,000, and the higher estimate puts it at about 70,000. The low estimate comes from the US military's own calculation in the 40s, and the higher figure comes from a recalculation made by international scientists in the 70s. So we cannot know for sure, but what we do know is that the Nagasaki bomb killed less people than the Hiroshima bomb, even though it had a bigger yield, was more powerful. This is mainly due to each city's geography. Hiroshima uh, was flat and surrounded eventually by hills, but the target area was flat, allowing the blast wave to run unimpeded across the city and devour that city. Whereas Nagasaki, the Fat Man bomb exploded over the Urakami Valley, which is a very hilly part of the city, And these hills provided shelter for other parts of the city. So much of the blast and the damage was contained inside the Urakami Valley, contained by those hills. I will read you an extract here from, again, Susan Southart's book, Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War. This is from page 41, and it describes what happened when Fat Man exploded. At 11.02am, a super brilliant flash lit up the sky, visible from as far away as Amura Naval Hospital, more than 10 miles over the mountains, followed by a thunderous explosion equal to the power of 21,000 tonnes of TNT. 
the entire city convulsed. At its burst point, the centre of the explosion reached temperatures higher than at the centre of the sun, and the velocity of its shockwave exceeded the speed of sound. A tenth of a millisecond later, all of the materials that had made up the bomb converted into an ionised gas, and electromagnetic waves were released into the air. Within one second, the blazing fireball expanded from 52 feet to its maximum size of 750 feet in diameter. Within three seconds, the ground below reached an estimated 5,400 to 7,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Directly beneath the bomb, infrared heat rays instantly carbonised human and animal flesh and vaporised internal organs. As the atomic cloud billowed two miles overhead and eclipsed the sun, the bomb's vertical blast pressure crushed much of the Urakami Valley. Horizontal blast winds tore through the region two and a half times the speed of a Category 5 hurricane, pulverising buildings, trees, plants, animals and thousands of men, women and children. An iron bridge moved 28 inches downstream. She ends this section saying, The ascending fireball suctioned massive amounts of thick dust and debris into its churning stem. A deafening roar erupted as buildings throughout the city shuddered and crashed to the ground. In the air, the two B-29s, Boxcar and Great Artiste, were heading fast for home. We know, of course, that Boxcar was low on fuel and so couldn't make it back to Tinian. And so it aimed instead for an emergency landing at Okinawa. Captain Sweeney of Boxcar tried to radio the airstrip to prepare for their emergency landing, but there was no response. He didn't have enough fuel to circle and wait to be called in. There was no alternative but just to land. And everyone down there had better shift it. As a last desperate attempt to grab attention of the ground staff, Boxcar began setting off emergency flares as she came in. As she barreled down the runway, skidding to a halt, ending up in a 90 degree turn. Some of her engines actually died from lack of fuel as soon as they touched down on the runway. She had landed safely at the very last second. According to Paul Ham's book, Hiroshima Nagasaki, the ground crew dashed across the runway towards Boxcar, this plane who had come in for an emergency landing in obvious distress, throwing emergency flares everywhere. Where's the dead and wounded, they cried. And Captain Sweeney gestured north to Nagasaki. Back there, he replied. On Okinawa, the pilots and the crew, they got some food, they got some fuel, and a few hours later they flew home to Tinian, where they were greeted by... nothing, really. When Enola Gay had come back from her mission over Hiroshima, there had been photographers and journalists, crowds on Tinian clamouring to see her. But there was no such fuss for Boxcar. 
She came home. Captain Sweeney gave his reports. And everyone waited for the Japanese surrender. So that's the end of our quick look at the flight of Boxcar, which we've covered in this episode and in last week's. Of course, we've talked about the bomber and the crew and the mission to bomb the city. We haven't talked about the victims of what survivors experienced down on the ground. And I think that's because that awful topic deserves more than being shoved in alongside the story of Boxcar. So I'm going to cover that in a separate episode. And I'm going to do it as a video podcast. So I'm going to do that during the week. I'm going to film it and I'm going to upload it to my Patreon website. So that will form a special benefit for those who support the podcast on Patreon. Now that my book is written, I have more free time, of course. And so I'm going to do video uh, podcasts once a month, available exclusively to patrons. So if you are already a patron and you pay... £3 a month or more, you can watch these video podcasts once a month on the Patreon website. So if you want to join in on this, if you want to support the podcast and get access to these monthly videos, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. As I see, I've got a bit more time on my hands just now, so why not branch out into doing monthly videos? So the first video episode I'm going to do is about the survivors of the atomic bombings. And my main source for that is going to be a book called Death in Life by Robert J. Lifton. And that book was recommended to me by none other than Mick Jackson. Mick Jackson, of course, is the director of Threads. When I interviewed Mick Jackson a couple of months ago, you can find that episode in the archive, he had said that he had made himself an expert on nuclear war when he came to pitch threads to the BBC. He wanted to make himself an expert so that there couldn't be a repetition of the treatment given to the war game. He wanted to be infallible, I suppose, to know his subject completely so that if anyone began trying to chip away at it, he could say firmly and strictly, I know my subject and I can back it all up. He made himself an expert in nuclear war. And part of that process was, of course, tons of reading and one of the books which he spoke about was Death in Life by Robert J. Lifton which is about the survivors of Hiroshima and of course uh, Mick Jackson drew on a lot of that for the experience of Ruth and other survivors in Threads. So the podcast will of course continue weekly as always but as they say if you want something extra you can get a video episode once a month on the Patreon website and we will look at this book Death in Life which Mick Jackson used to make himself an expert in nuclear war and to inform the terrible suffering that we see in the second half of Threads. So patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. Remember if you join up to Patreon you can cancel at any time. There is no crazy contract which drags you into it. Join at any time, cancel at any time. So thank you all for listening. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook as Nuclear Britain or on my website at juliemcdowell.com.